Let's open our Bibles to, uh, we only got through half of Luke chapter 16. So let's go back to Luke 16 and read one verse. Uh, We left off with verse 17. So Luke chapter 16, verse 18, the Lord gives us one verse here. We'll go to others on divorce. Now whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. And whoever marries her who is divorced from her husband commits adultery. Now, if this were the only verse of scripture on the subject of divorce, there would be no divorce for a Christian. This verse should be compared with, uh, if you're taking notes, two places, uh, Matthew chapter 19 and 1 Corinthians chapter 7. All scripture must be considered on a certain subject to ascertain its truth. Our Lord spoke on this subject to these men who were under the law because they were making light of the law of God. So with that, let's turn um, to Matthew chapter 19, where the Lord gives quite a bit more detail, and then we'll go also to Paul's teaching on it, and 1 Corinthians 7, chapter 19, verse 1. Now it came to pass when Jesus had finished these sayings that he departed from Galilee, came to the region of Judea beyond the Jordan, and a great multitude followed him, and he healed them there. The Pharisees also came to him, testing him, and saying to him, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for just any reason? First thing I want to point out, again, they're continually trying to corner the Lord with a trick question. And the, the question is here, is it lawful for a man um, to divorce his wife for just any reason? And the Lord answered and said to them, have you not read that he who made them at the beginning made them male and female. Oh. <laughs> the things that pop in my head that I should not go there. <laughs> um, all right, I'll just, I'll just let this out and let it go for what it's worth. Uh, our soccer team won the world championship. But we did a little Google search and it's interesting the gender that is made up of our team. And I'll just do a little, I'll, I'll let your imagination roam with that and what, what I'm implying where it says he made them male and female. There's a verse that says that the male uh, were to treat them more respectfully because they're the weaker vessel. Um, uh, when you do the homework on Denmark and um, the U.S. team, they were most involved with transgender issues. Let's just put it that way. And um, it it got me thinking of Lance Armstrong. Boy, is this getting off the subject or what? Who remembers Lance Armstrong? Um, Tour de France, he went like six years in a row. He got cancer. But they found out during this time he was doping, which gave him an unfair competitive edge because, uh, because of the doping, he had more stamina. And uh, as a result, they stripped him of all those titles that he earned. Why? 
because he didn't get, do it fairly. Uh, he used um, um, athletic doping material to give him more strength, more stamina, and that's the reason Lance Armstrong won the Tour de France. I think I'm going to leave it at that <laughs> and let, let you think about it. All right. Um, he made them, male and female, and said, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife. The two shall become one flesh. So then, they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no man separate. And they said to him, Well, why then did Moses command to give a certificate of divorce and to put her away? Now, um, they had added to the customs and traditions where if um, your wife burnt <laughs> supper, uh, they would take this to an extreme and use it as an excuse um, to get a divorce. And they're trying to trap him. That's why he says they're just for any reason. Can, can he do it just for any reason? Because now they had a lot of reasons. By the time the law was given, and by the time it was the Lord's time, they had uh, abused uh, this law of divorce that Moses gave, and it was over the most uh, trivial of issues. So we go on, uh, and he said, Moses, because of the hardness of your hearts, permitted you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, and marries another, commits adultery. And whoever marries her, who is divorced, commits adultery. And his disciples said to him, if such is the case of the man with his wife, then it's better not to be married. But he said to them, all cannot accept this saying, but only those to whom it has been given. Then he begins to talk about eunuchs. And um, he says, um, verse 12, for there are eunuchs who were born thus from their mother's womb. Um, I believe uh, John the Baptist was. Um, I have questions about Paul. I think he made himself a eunuch. Imagine being the most radical person against Christianity. And he gets knocked off his horse on his way to Damascus where he's going to put Christians in prison. But the Lord appears to him and he says, who are you, Lord? And he says, I'm Jesus, whom you're persecuting. He says, Saul, it's hard to kick a cactus. And um, he was blinded for three days. And after three days, the Lord healed him. Now imagine Paul coming home after this incident uh, because if one of the requirements, because they believe part of the law is to be fruitful and multiply, a Pharisee was indeed to be married. And I believe uh, there's a good chance that Paul was. But can you imagine coming home and say, you'll never guess what happened to me, dear, on the way to Damascus. <laughs> I'm a Christian now. And she probably said, you're what? <laughs> Her convictions were probably just as strong as Paul's. She didn't have the experience that Paul had. And as a result, uh, Paul would later say that he has this, this gift, 
but it could have been self-imposed. There are those who are made eunuchs by men. Um, We have um, Daniel. Remember the story of Daniel? And um, there was eunuchs that were uh, in charge over him. They were... um, Maybe they didn't have a gift of being a eunuch, but they were made one. And there are those who make themselves eunuchs for the kingdom of heaven's sake. Who is able to accept it, let him accept it. So um, let's get back to this one verse. Um, well, no, let's go, to, let's go to 1 Corinthians chapter 7 and continue the thought. Paul's going to add more detail to this. 1 Corinthians 7 Verse 10, okay, verse 10. Now to the married I command, yet not I but the Lord. Okay, so there's times Paul's gonna say, here's what I think, here's my opinion. He's uh, telling us straight out, this is not my thoughts and it's not my opinion. Um, Yet not I but the Lord. A wife is not to depart from her husband. Well, reality is, sometimes they do. And in verse 11, but even if she does depart, it says, let her remain unmarried or be reconciled to her husband. A husband is not to divorce his wife. But to the rest, I. Now, now we're switching from what the Lord has said. Now Paul says, but to the rest, I, not the Lord, say. Now Paul's giving his opinion. But let's explain something here. This is a part of the canon of scripture. And as we believe that every word is uh, inspired by the Holy Spirit and therefore carries the same uh, weight because it's in the context of scripture. Is everybody following me when I say that? Okay, so, but to the rest, I, not the Lord, say if any brother has a wife who does not believe and she is willing to live with him, uh, let him not divorce her. So now we have a, a, a husband that gets saved and um, the wife uh, does not believe. Uh, the husband is not to divorce her simply because she's uh, not a Christian. She's gonna say, okay. And um, those, that is not grounds for divorce. And a woman who has a husband who does not believe, if he is willing to live with her, let her not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is sanctified by the wife, and the unbelieving wife is sanctified by the husband. Otherwise your children would be unclean, but now they are holy. Um, As we're not to imply it here, uh, everybody has to make their own decision about following the Lord. It doesn't mean just because you're married that, uh, and you're born again, that your wife or husband who is not a believer, that doesn't mean they're saved. But the probability factors of living under the same house and the influence that's generated is, um, um, has the potential of, of um, that family getting saved. Verse 15, but if the unbeliever departs, now that this husband or wife comes home, explains that they're, Life has changed. I love the Lord. The Bible says that I, I have to love the Lord before father, mother, sister, or brother. He's got to be first. And um, I love you, honey, but Jesus has to be first in my life. And the husband or the wife thinks, 
you, you became one of those people? <laughs> you mean we can't go and do this anymore? And all these things that they used to do, they don't, that's not gonna happen? Well, they, that person says, I'm out of here. Um, but if the unbeliever departs, let him or her depart. A brother or sister is not under bondage in such a case, but God has called us to peace. Uh, for how do you know, O wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, O husband, whether or not you will save your wife? Let's go back to Luke. There's, um, according to scriptures, only one biblical grounds, and it's one verse that we have in, in Luke 16, and that's infidelity. Um, fornication is sexual relationships outside of marriage. Adultery is committing uh, a sexual act with a married person. That's the difference between the two. All right, verse 19 was a text for us a while back, but we're going, so going through chapter by chapter, verse by verse. This is really how we learn. And I guess I want to start out the parable of the rich man and Lazarus again by saying that... Um, in a parable, if a proper name is used, it is therefore not a parable, but a real story. So the, the uh, main point that can't be expressed enough is that um, you're gonna die or be raptured, one or the other. I prefer rapture myself, anybody else there? <laughs> yes, or you're going to die. And there's no getting around that. Even though we live life, um, um, we were talking about this, uh, I think yesterday, day before, uh, the normality bias is the terminology that's used. We live as though everything is always going to be the same. They're normality bias. And we just get conditioned to that. And all of a sudden, uh, New Orleans is going to get 20 inches of rain. The levees are at 20 feet, and they're going to reach that stage. And they're talking about Katrina. And then, how many saw the news tonight and are watching this major, major storm coming up? Oh, their life, their life is going to be changed forever. But, um, um, and that's a reality. Reality that life is short, and it's a vapor. You have a day you're born, you have a dash, and you have a day that you die. And that, that dash, in compare, if you compare it to eternity, that which has always been and that which is always going to be, then how brief of time really is that? Isn't it not just a vapor? That's what the Bible calls it, a vapor. Poof. That's, a, that's how long your life is. Poof. Do you think that way? Well, it's, it's stories like this that um, take away that normality bias. Things are not always going to be the same. And your life can radically change, as a lot of people's lives are radically being changed tonight down uh, in the, in the uh, uh, panhandle of Florida, New Orleans, Houston area. Uh, major, major storm. They had uh, different colors of uh, 18 inches of rain. 18 inches of rain. <laughs> so let's begin by saying there was a certain rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and fared sumptuously every day. 
But there was a certain beggar named Lazarus, full of sores, who was laid at his gate, desiring to be fed from the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, the dogs came and licked his sores. And so it was that the beggar died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's bosom. The rich man also died and was buried. And being in torment in Hades, or hell, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom. Again, um, let's just, we went through this on Sunday, but again we learned through repetition. We know this is in the heart of the earth because Jesus said as uh, Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Also called the bottomless pit. So in this world, in the very center of this world, is Hades. When Jesus was giving this parable, it consisted of two chambers. Um, The rich man was in one, he's in torment. Lazarus, on the other hand, um, we read, um, was in a place called Abraham's bosom. Um, Again, this chamber, when the thief on uh, the Lord's right-hand side believed on him. He said, Lord, when you enter your kingdom, will you remember me? And he said, today. He said, today you're gonna be with me in paradise. So where's paradise? We know that the Lord didn't go to heaven for three days, so that day he was in paradise. Abraham's bosom is paradise. So the rich man, he saw... in Abraham's bosom, the rich man also died and was buried. And being in torment in Hades, he saw Lazarus in Abraham's bosom. And he cried and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water, cool my tongue, for I am tormented in this flame. Uh, There are those who naively believe that when you die, you die. That's all there is. That's all there's to it. And... um, a lot of people who take their own life, they take it with the thinking that I just don't like this world anymore and I'm not gonna, I don't like the suffering I'm in, I don't like my financial situation, whatever. So all that's gonna be gone. Well, just the opposite is true. Number one, he, we're told in 1 Corinthians 15 that there's a spiritual body and there's a physical body. There's a spiritual body that you're going to have for all eternity if you go to hell. And there's a spiritual body that you're going to have for all eternity if you go to heaven. And the dynamics of this body is the ability to feel torment, to feel thirst. Um, when, When we did this on a Sunday morning, we went to Revelation, and it said they had no rest day or night. So the desire to sleep but yet not being able to sleep. And so he's conscious, and um, Abraham says to him, verse 25, son, remember that in your lifetime you received good things, and likewise Lazarus evil things. But now he is comforted and you are tormented. And besides all this, between us and you, there's a great gulf fixed, so that those who want to pass from here to you cannot nor can those from there pass to us. When we read in Revelation 9, 
it says an angel came down with a key to the bottomless pit. So um, it's a place of being incarcerated. And he opened the pit and they had these demon locusts come out. So what do we have in hell? We have people who died in their sins. We have demonic beings that are there that'll be let out in Revelation chapter nine. And um, um, the idea of them wanting to get out is clearly told in the story where uh, the Lord cast the demons out of the man of Gadarene and uh, they were scared. They said, we know who you are, Jesus, son of the most high God. Do not torment us before the time and please, whatever you do, don't send us to the abyss. What is the abyss? Same as Hades, same as a bottomless pit, same as hell, this place here. Now, um, when I'm done here, I'll tell you what's gonna happen to the rich man, but let's finish the story here. Um, So the idea, you can't leave, and the awareness now begins to just sink in on this person, that I am here, there's absolutely nothing I can do about it. And this is, now he begins to think, maybe for the first time, concerned for his brothers. I doubt if he had it before. In verse 27, I beg you therefore, Father, that you would send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, that he may, we would say, witness to them, lest they come to this place of torment. And Abraham said unto them, they have Moses and the prophets. That's another way of saying, well, they have a Bible, don't they? Let them read the Bible. Let them have faith and believe in what the word of God says. But he knows his brothers. And he says, no, Father Abraham, but one, if one goes to them from the dead, then they'll repent. Understands that the real issue here is repentance. But he said to them, even if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, though one rise from the dead. The reality of hell is trying to be explained away. It was either this last Sunday or the Sunday before. We talked about... Um, Um, universalism uh, made popular by the shack million dollar seller and basically the bottom line in universalism is that nobody stays in hell everybody eventually goes to to heaven Rob Bell in his book Love Wins Uh, again universalism with the idea Um, that there will be a temporary payment. How could a loving God and one who talks about forgiveness, as by the way, where we're going to on Sunday, uh, how could God not forgive? And what kind of a God is that? And um, the answer to that question is a just one and a holy one. Uh, When you break the law, we talked a little bit about degrees of this torment that's gonna take place in heaven. Uh, Some will have many stripes and some will have fewer stripes. Well, what does that mean? Well, we understand it today. If you get a parking ticket, that might be 20 bucks. But if you 
commit first degree premeditated murder, you could go to jail for life or even receive the death penalty. Now, if we understand the judicial system of justice, then how much more a holy God who is just? So um, the other thing that we talked about was annihilationism. The belief of annihilationism is the idea that when you die, you die. That's it. You're annihilated. There's nothing left. Well, um, there is a way that seems right unto man, and that way ends in death. Good place for an amen. You see, we lean upon, we let this do our thinking. How could God? That's why the scripture says, my heart, your heart is deceitful. It will fool you. Is deceitful above all things. Who can know it? That's why we can't say this enough. Whatever you feel, whatever you think, how does it line up with scripture? We are told to bring, I'm guilty of this one because I don't do it, and I know you're guilty of this one because you don't do it either. (laughs) And that is to bring every thought into captivity before we open this thing here. Something comes into our head. Well, I'm commenting on that before, you know, I'm thought it through, no. Our thought process should be this, okay? One of three things just happened. I'm talking to myself, the Lord is talking to me, or I'm being tempted by the devil. One of three possibilities. So before we move this, we bring that thought, we think about it. I wonder what the word of God has to say about what I'm thinking about right now. And if you don't do that, then you're not bringing that thought into captivity and you could get yourself in big trouble. Another good place for an amen. But if we do, oh, hell, how could a loving God ever send anybody to hell? Or when, when you die, you die, that's it. That's annihilationism, it's all over. No more, no more putting up with the uh, turmoils and trials of this world. Well, your heart may tell you that, and your brain may tell you that, but it, does not line up with what the scripture teaches. The Bible says once to die, and then what? And then the judgment. There are two judgments. There is a judgment seat of Christ, which is called the Bema seat judgment, which is for Christians. Has nothing to do with your salvation. It has only to do with what you've done for the Lord while you lived in this life. That dash, what did you do for the Lord? That's what that judgment's all about. But um, the rich man is in hell. Turn with me to Revelation 20. He's there this evening as we're giving this Bible study. Revelation 20, picking it up. We did this on a Sunday morning. Um, Verse, oh, we might as well go back to verse 11. This is um, at the end, we're told, of the thousand-year millennial reign. And we find that the devil is finally thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are. They will be tormented day and night just for a period of time. Is that what it says? No, forever and ever, for all eternity. Then I saw a great white throne and him who sat on it, whose face the earth and the heavens fled away and there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God. 
and the books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life, and the dead were judged according to their works. No Christian will be at the great white throne judgment. Only those who insisted that they be judged by what they do, their deeds, by the things that were written in the books. Then the sea gave up the dead who were in it, and the reason I had you turn here is because of verse 13. Where the rich man is right now in hell, hell will be emptied someday. That's what it says here. And death and hell were delivered up the dead who were in them, and they were judged each one according to his works. The rich man hasn't even been judged yet. His list, why he went to hell, will be manifested on that day because the Lord was keeping track of it all and writing it down. Then death and Haiti were cast into the lake of fire. Now the lake of fire is different than hell. Uh, This is the second death. So the rich man, it says, he died and he went to hell, as he died once. Well now, he's before the great white throne judgment, and now he's cast into the lake of fire, and it clearly tells us this is the second death. If you're taking notes, you might want to know that there are seven letters written to the seven churches, and to each one of um, the churches, he gives a promise, two. And one of the promises, I can't remember off the top of my head which one it was, he says, and I will spare you from, you will not experience the second death. That's one of the promises to one of the seven churches. And anyone who was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. Let's go back to Luke. And um, we finished up um, chapter 16. And again, the reality of um, that chamber being emptied. There no longer is Abraham's bosom. Um, And if you're taking notes, you want to jot down Ephesians chapter 4. That tells us that this chamber was emptied. I'll just read it to you. When he ascended on high, this is a reference to Jesus, he led captivity captive. These were the captives. They were, according to Hebrews, they died in faith not having received the promise. These Old Testament saints, that's in Hebrews chapter 10, if you're keeping notes. They all died in faith. That means Lazarus died in faith. Um, he led captivity captive and gave gifts to men. But now he clarifies in verse nine what he's talking about. Now this he ascended, what does it mean that he first descended into the lower parts of the earth? This is another way of saying the bottomless pit or hell or the center of the earth. He who descended is also the one who ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. Now in Matthew, again if you're taking notes, Matthew chapter 27, it says that many of the graves were opened and many of the saints were seen walking around Jerusalem. But then it's very careful to clarify, it says after Jesus' resurrection. Jesus was the first fruits. He was the first one to come back with a resurrected body. 
So when he died on the cross, uh, Abraham's bosom uh, was not emptied for those three days. And uh, after those three, three days, now when a Christian dies, 2 Corinthians 5 tells us what? To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. It's an instantaneous event that takes place. So um, I think we can leave that subject now and go back to Luke. Abraham's bosom no longer exists. Hell exists, but it will not exist after the great white throne judgment. It will be emptied out into the lake of fire. Now in chapter 17, Jesus instructs his disciples on forgiveness. Again, we'll be on talking about on Sunday. Jesus instructs his disciples on a faithful service. Jesus heals 10 lepers. Jesus speaks on the spiritual nature of God's kingdom. And then the Lord speaks about his uh, coming. Let's read the first uh, four verses here. Then he said to his disciples, it is impossible that no offense should come. But woe to him through whom they do come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea than he should offend one of these little ones. Take heed to yourself, for if your brother sins against you, then rebuke him. In other words, tell him. And if he repents, forgive him. Now I have the word if underlined here. It's a big little word. Uh, and it, uh, there's a qualification I'm making here with for, forgiveness and we'll really hopefully drive this point home on Sunday. If your brother sins and pointed out, he said, man, you did this, you were slandering me or you lied about me or you stole from me or you did something and I'm calling you out on it, period. And he goes, yeah, you're right, I did, I'm sorry. And if he does that, then... Um, he says, if he repents, he goes, you're right, I blew it, got in the flesh, said some things I shouldn't have, I'm sorry, and you don't forgive him, now you're the one who's in trouble. And if he sins against you seven times in a day, then seven times a day returns to you and says, I repent, and you shall forgive me. In other words, you can't say to that person, all right, you blew it, I forgive you, and then he turns around and does it again. He says, I'll do it once, but I'm not gonna let you get away with it twice, much less three times. The Lord says, no. If he does it in the same day, seven times, if he's um, repenting of it, then uh, you're to forgive him uh, for it. But the scripture that I wanna point out here is if he repents. Turn with me. And let me ask this question. Go just back, we were there a couple of weeks ago. Go back to Luke chapter 13. Let me ask this question. Does God forgive if you don't repent? That's the question. Does God forgive if you don't repent? Um, Luke chapter 13, verses one through five. There were present at that season some who were told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifice. And Jesus answered and said to them, do you suppose that these Galileans were worse sinners than other Galileans because they suffered such things? 
I tell you no, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or those 18 on whom the Tower of Siloam fell and killed them, do you think they were worse sinners than other sinners who dwelt in Jerusalem? I tell you no. In other words, what the Lord is saying, all have sinned, everybody. Everybody in this room is on the equal, equal grounds. Um, but unless you repent, that's the word if there, unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. So the whole concept that most people have is that God somehow judges on this curve of uh, being a nice guy and better than others. In other words, if his disciples should be ready always to forgive, does not say that the one who offends should not be rebuked, uh, should be made to appreciate his fault, but when he sincerely repents, he should be forgiven, even if he repeats his sin over and over. Let's make an application. There are people today who are trying to follow the Ten Commandments, especially the Hebrew Roots Movement. And I like to bring the Hebrew, Hebrew Roots Movement up because it's, it's, more, it's trendy. The idea is you, you have to keep the Sabbath and, and basically keep the law in order to have your salvation. And um, those who do such um, by trying to keep the law, someday God is going to um, not pat them on the back and say, what a fine person you are. You have earned your way to heaven. If you keep the Ten Commandments and the Sermon on the Mount, which you cannot, you are only doing what you're supposed to do. Do you think you would receive salvation for that? My friend, that's what you're supposed to do as one of his creatures. We need to recognize that salvation is simply a gift. You cannot work for it. Um, You can't earn it. Uh, Keeping God's law uh, is a duty, unfortunately, that we can't live up to. Another good place for an amen. And with that, as we look at here, The question, does God forgive? Yes, he forgives if you repent. That's the idea. What if you don't repent? Well, the rich man that was in hell said, go witness to him. If somebody raises from the dead, then they will what? What did he say? Then they'll repent. He recognized what needed to be done that he didn't do. So the whole idea of... um, of um, what the Lord is teaching on here about repentance, the big word is if. And I tell you, unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. All right, let's pick it up in verse, that was one through four. Uh, Verse five. And then the apostles said to the Lord, increase our faith. Now if I would just throw that out to you tonight, those watching live stream, those here at Calvary Chapel, Appleton in the Bible study. If I say, how do, you, how do you increase your faith? What's the first scripture that comes to mind? Faith comes by hearing, right? Hearing comes by the word of God. In other words, what you're doing tonight is increasing your faith. But that's not exactly what the Lord says here. He is going to address 
what our attitude should be if we really have faith. If I would summarize what we're about to read here. It's one thing to be in a Bible study. And go, oh, I get that now. Oh, that's how that works. I never saw that before. Oh, that's what that means. And as a result, we have a more understanding and we actually grow in confidence and faith that God's word is God's word. That's not the point that he's making here. The point here is as believers, what should our attitude be in light of the fact that we have this salvation? And what did we, this part above it that we read above it is um, um, the forgiveness part. So verse six, so the Lord said, if you have faith as a mustard seed, you can say to the mulberry tree, be pulled up by the roots and be planted in the sea, and it would obey you. And which of you, and this is the important part, having a servant plowing or tending sheep, will say to him when he comes in from the field, okay, he's been working outside hot all day long, um, doing, he's your servant, he's working for you, and when he comes in at once, And um, will you say to him when he comes in from working, come on in, sit down, have something to eat. But will he not rather say to him, no, even though you have been working all day, you prepare something for my supper and gird yourself and you serve me till I have eaten and drunk and afterwards you will eat and drink. In other words, I'm the boss, you're the employee. You feed me and then you eat. Is everybody with me? All right. Do you th- does he thank that servant because he did the things that were commanded him? I think not. Um, so likewise, when you have done all those things which you are commanded, simply say, we're unprofitable servants. We have done what was our duty to do. Question, what's your duty? Is it not to be a witness? Is it not to go into all the world? Is it not to look for an opportunity to um, share the gospel with other people? Good place for an amen. Is that our command? That's what, if the Lord is our Lord and he's given us a commandment and we've received salvation, what are we? We're beggars who found bread, gang. And now we can point the finger to other people so they know where to get their bread too. So this is more of an attitude for Christians on how we conduct, what's a good word for it? How we conduct ourselves with an attitude that is one of um, an unprofitable servant. Lord, you saved me by your grace. I don't deserve any of this. I'm simply an unprofitable servant. And if I witness to somebody or do your work, I'm only doing my job. And you're only doing your job. That's what the Lord has called us to do, to be salt and light while we're here. And so this teaching on uh, the question, Lord, show us how to increase your faith. Well, here's evidence of your faith. You get used by the Lord. What it shouldn't do is give you a big head and actually think that you're somebody, that God used you. No, just the opposite. You're just doing your job. You're an unprofitable servant that's been saved by grace, just a beggar that's been saved and our, our duty and our attitude that we conduct ourselves with 
is simply one of humility. Well, the Lord just saved me. And we don't uh, become haughty or proud or walk around like Benny Hinn across the stage or whatever, you know, and, and put on a big show. All right, let's take it a step farther. And it goes, again, the continuing thought here is one of gratitude and attitude. And it is a cleansing of the ten lepers. Let's pick it up in verse 11. Now it happened as he went to Jerusalem that he passed through the midst of Samaria and Galilee. Um, And he entered a certain village. Remember it says Samaria and Galilee. The hero in this story is going to be a Samaritan. Then he entered a certain village and there met him ten who were lepers who stood afar off. And they lifted up their voices and said, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. So when he saw them, he said to them, go, show yourself to the priest. And so it was, as they went, they were cleansed. So their going was an act of faith. And I'll explain that in just a bit here because I'm gonna take you to Leviticus. Now one of them, when he saw that it was, he was healed, now this had to be wild because no human contact for, for so long and um, all of a sudden he looks down and I'm clean, I'm healed. He returns with a loud voice glorifying God and he fell down on his face at his feet giving thanks and the Bible goes out of the way to point out he was a Samaritan. So Jesus answered him and said, were there not 10 that were cleansed? Where are the other guys? Uh, Were there not any found who returned to give glory to God except this foreigner, the Samaritan? And he said to him, arise, go your way, your faith has made you well. All right, turn with me to the book of, I can't go through the whole chapter, but enough for you to understand why the Lord would say, go show yourself to the priest. Leviticus, Genesis, Exodus, then there's Leviticus, looking at chapter 13. And the whole chapter, which is very, very lengthy, 60 verses long, um, I'm just gonna read a little bit and then encourage you to do your own homework because I wanna be able to get through all of 17 tonight. And if I read all of chapter 13, I won't be able to get there. So this has to do with the um, day of the cleansing and the priest being the one who would quarantine a person if he indeed showed he had leprosy. Verse one, and the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron saying, when a man has on the skin of his body a swelling, a scab, or a bright spot, and it becomes on the skin of his body like a leprous sore, then he shall be brought to Aaron the priest or to one of the sons of the priests. That's why the Lord told them these guys were lepers. But now they have to be inspected by the priest and that's why he told them, go show yourself to the priest. This is all part of the law. Remember Jesus said, don't think that I've come to destroy the law. I have not. I've not come to destroy it. I came to fulfill it. The priest shall look at the sore on the skin of the body and the hair of the sore has turned white and the sore appears to be deeper than the skin of his body. It is a leper's sore. And then the priest shall look at him and pronounce him unclean. 
And I'm not gonna read the rest of it because it goes into such detail. Even to when you get to verse 29, the clothing that that person has worn, that will also be separated in quarantine, and that's from 29 to the rest of the chapter, uh, talking about whether uh, the leprosy is still there or whether it's been gone. Now, here's the issue. Leprosy is not curable, uh, especially in these times. It's an incurable disease, yet the Lord made provision for the healing of the a leper in the day of his cleansing. Seeing ahead that Jesus would come and heal lepers. One out of 10 came back. The Lord asked a question. Where are the other guys? Where, why aren't they here? Again, if you're taking notes, Hebrews chapter 13, verse 15. Therefore, by him, let us continually offer the sacrifice of praise to God that is the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to his name. There's a reason that we begin every service here with music. It's wondrous what it does. You can walk through that door having a hard day, your head going through some trial or some trauma or something, and all of a sudden the worship team just starts singing. And it's like the old song, the things of the world go strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. What was I worried about anyway? Here we are just worshiping the Lord. What's the only thing that we can do? Can't do any works. We're unprofitable servants. That's what we learned tonight. So what should we have? We're so, we should be so grateful for our salvation that the only thing we can do is really sing love songs to the Lord and say, thank you, Lord, and having this attitude of appreciation that you even cleansed me. Sin is leprosy. It is incurable. There's only one cure for sin. It is the blood of Jesus Christ. There's only one cure for leprosy, and that is the Lord himself doing the miracle. And then keeping the law, he says, okay, you're healed. The law says do this, so go do it. Um, but the last couple things we learned here was the, um, this whole idea of uh, what our attitude should be. This was our text on Sunday, so I'm not gonna spend a lot of time here because we just did it on Sunday, verse, pretty much verse by verse. But again, that's how we learn, so let's read it, and I'll point out a couple things that I didn't touch on on Sunday, and I'll we'll let that go. So picking it up in verse 20. Now when he was asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, he answered and said to them, the kingdom of God does not come with observation. See, they believed that the Messiah, when he, come, when he came, would overthrow the Roman government and the kingdom age would start. But it doesn't, he's saying it doesn't come with observation. Nor will they say, see here or see there, for indeed the kingdom of God is here within you. Now here in these couple of verses, the Lord speaks of the fact that the kingdom of God comes not with observation. To whom is he talking? He's answering the Pharisees who are demanding that he tell them when the kingdom will come. 
He's not saying that the kingdom of God is inside the hearts of these godless and hostile Pharisees. Rather, the kingdom of God was in their midst in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. He was right then standing among them. You want to know where the kingdom of God is? You're looking at him. That's what he was basically telling them. And then he said to his disciples, the day will come when you will desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man, and you won't see it. He's talking about after he's taken into heaven and they're left to carry out the Great Commission. And they will say to you, look here, look there. Do not go after them or follow them. For as the lightning that flashes out of one part under heaven shines to the other part, so the Son of Man will be in that day. But first he must suffer many things, be rejected by this generation. And as it was in the days of Noah, so it will also be in the days of the Son of Man. They ate, they drank, they married. They were given in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark. And the flood came and destroyed them all. Likewise, as it was in the days of Lot, they ate, they drank, they bought. They sold, they planted, they built. But on that day that Lot went out of Sodom, it rained fire and brimstone and from heaven and destroyed them all. Even so it will be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed. In that day, he who is on the housetop and his goods are in the house, let him not come down to take them away. And likewise, the one who is in the field, let him not turn back. Sunday's message was remember Lot's wife. I'm gonna have something put up on the screen that was on the screen on Sunday. And I'm gonna change something Here is what we put out on Sunday uh, concerning um, the the main point that we have in both of these. The Lord uses the example of Noah and Lot as Old Testament pictures of a New Testament teaching. In both cases, with Noah and with Lot, they have one thing in common. They both were taken out before the judgment could come. And we spent quite a bit of time on that. If you weren't here on Sunday, please get the the CD afterwards. And we went into quite a bit of depth on this particular thought. But in closing, I want to add something that um, I didn't. Do I dare tell you how long I went on Sunday, the second service? Oh, my goodness. It was. (laughs) I went back there and I go, really? Is it really that late? (laughs) And. I was cutting corners, but I really wanted to take you, when we go through the list of comparison, um, I mentioned R.C. Sproul, and uh, he's a post-tribber, and uh, that simply means that they don't believe there'll be a rapture, but they come and they, come back, they go up and come back pretty much at the same time. And I wanted to point out, and if I can put it up on a chart, um, the difference between the two comings. Now, this is not unusual because what Israel did not understand is that Jesus would have to come twice. What they didn't understand and what they couldn't reconcile is Isaiah chapter 53. How can he be a suffering servant? How can he be a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief? And it pleased the Father to bruise him. They knew they were talking about the Messiah, but these are all suffering verses. What, what does that mean? It pleased, and 
we like, that's also the scripture, we like sheep have gone astray. Everyone has done his own thing and gone his own way. They couldn't reconcile that suffering servant with the king of kings who would rule in the kingdom. So what's your point, Dwight? Two comings. He would come the first time as a servant. And the second time, Revelation 19, as king of kings and lord of lords. So also there's two comings for um, the difference between the second coming and the rapture. And let's just go through this quickly because I want to take you to Isaiah. Uh, at the rapture, uh, their translation of all believers. At the second coming, there's no translation. We come with him, uh, according to the Old Testament, with 10,000 of the saints, that's us. At the rapture, the, the raptured will go to heaven. Um, in the second coming, the saints return to the earth. The rapture, the earth is not judged. Um, the second coming, the earth is judged. At the second, at the rapture, happens at any moment, it's signless. We call it, it's imminent, it could happen at any time. Uh, but the second co- uh, coming follows definite predictions and signs. Matter of fact, all the book of Revelation chapter six through 19. Now this is the one that I want to disagree with. It's not in the Old Testament. And I let it go on Sunday, but I'm not gonna let it go tonight. Um, But the second coming is predicted often in the Old Testament. Turn with me, first of all, to, oh, let's go to John 14 first before we go to the Old Testament. We'll close with this tonight. I'm frustrated because I wish I had more time. John 14, first four verses. He says, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. And I'm going to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. And where I go, you know, and the way you know. I believe um, he's talking about the rapture of the church. Now I'll turn to Isaiah chapter 26, where I believe we do have a picture of the rapture in the Old Testament. And the reason I put that here, it says there is no um, scriptures that talk about the rapture of the Old Testament. Again, I believe there's plenty of pictures. Enoch walked with God and he was not. He took him. He took him when? Before the flood. He was the father of Methuselah. Noah and Lot, pictures, both taken out before judgment. Isaiah 26, I'll close with this tonight, picking it up in verse 20. Now, when I read this, let me remind you of a couple things. Um, I could pick a bunch of them. Let's just pick... um, uh, Zechariah chapter nine. Verse nine says, your king comes to you lowly, sitting on a coal of a fold, okay? And that's just out of nowhere. And then you have verse 10. And that verse says that when he comes, his kingdom will be from sea to sea. So what do we have? We have in the middle of nowhere, the Lord bringing in a prophecy about the Messiah, 
And then from one verse to the next, we have a gap of it of um, a, thousand, a thousand years, um, and even longer. So here we could be, uh, this is uh, chapter 26, is Israel's kingdom song, so it's about the kingdom. But then it says in verse 20, it says, come my people and enter your chambers. What chambers? Oh, the ones he prepared for, so let your heart be comforted. And then shut the doors behind you. Hide yourself, as it were, for a little moment. How much of a little moment? Seven years, to be exact. Until the indignation is passed. Do you know that there are many different words for the tribulation? Time of Jacob's trouble. Daniel's 70th week. Uh, The great indignation. The great tribulation. Well, here, he says, I want you to hide in your chambers for just for a little while until the indignation is passed. Then what? For behold, the Lord comes out of his place to punish the inhabitants of the earth for their iniquity. So in other words, he's taking his church out. They're going into the place that he talked about in John chapter 14 and just be there for a while. In the meantime, um, until the indignation or the great tribulation is over, why? Because the Lord is going to come out and Revelation chapter 6 verse 17 it says this is the wrath of the Lamb. So again, I don't see the church in any part. I think this is a very, very interesting verse. To punish the inhabitants of the earth for their iniquity. These are the ones who heard the gospel and rejected it. The earth will also disclose her blood and will be no more cover her slain. That's what I wanted to talk about on Sunday, but when I saw how late it was, I thought, nope, you better cut, cut it off right here. Well, what do you mean? I'm only 10 minutes over already, so let's stand and we'll pray. <laughs> Lord, we thank you for your word. As we make our way, again, just chapter by chapter, verse by verse. And we thank you, Lord, that your word is, um, it foretells future events, it gives us um, instructions on how we're to conduct ourselves as Christians. Lord, we're just unprofitable servants doing what you've asked us to do. And we should just have this attitude of gratefulness for what you've done for us. We shouldn't get big-headed about it. But Lord, it should motivate us to share what you've given to us. And we should do it and uh, in a simple way and a humble way. So Lord, open up doors for us that we can be that servant, that unprofitable servant who is just going about doing what you've called us to do. Thank you for your word tonight. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.